Greetings in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you this morning. It's always wonderful to get to share time and reflection around Scripture and to have the Spirit of the Lord pour into us through His Word what He would have for us to learn. I'm grateful to be here this morning. My bride, Tara, who is at home, sends her greetings. Um, I'm glad to have my little Miss Savannah with me. That's my baby girl, my princess, my little queen, my chocolate drop. Uh, <laughs> yes, her mama's the chocolate bar, but that's my little chocolate drop. God gave to me. Yes, indeed. It's good to see all of you and be with you uh, this morning. I'm grateful to President Rich and uh, Brother Landis and Dr. Brown and Pastor Christian for being so warm with their greeting. I also want to thank my brother Rashawn, who uh, helped me with all things audio. And my brother Rashawn is responsible for that playlist that was moving my soul this morning. You put on little Temptations, then the Marvin Gaye, then hit me with some Michael Jackson. You really want me to preach today, my brother. You was, was priming the pump with that soundtrack, I gotta tell you. Peacemaker's Convocation, it's, it's a great experience and a great opportunity to share from God's word. As we look at the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I believe what we see is not simply what is now termed or what was termed after his death, simply a civil rights movement which is a governmental designation for new policies that would be written out of that space and time. But as I speak with family members who I was raised who told me the story, they did not view it as a civil rights movement. They viewed it as a prophetic move of God that began in one location. And see, this is the thing, when you put lofty terms around it, like civil rights movement, you begin to pick certain leaders like Dr. King, who has a doctorate from Boston College and Morehouse, and, and he's moved through all this education, you begin to focus the light on that individual. And you begin to miss the intricacies of how God moves through various people of diverse backgrounds and diverse stations to move forward his will in the world. It's good to be on a university campus, but this is what I always try and get across. Having my doctorate from the University of Southern California, I understand this much. God does not only use those who have PhDs. God is not so mesmerized by everyone in this room simply because you are pursuing higher education. It is good and mold your mind, but God reserves the right to use whomever God wants to use. And biblical scripture affirms that over and over and over again. My grandma Lindsay would say it like this, God is no respecter of person. And I love the way grandmama used to work with us when we'd stay at her house. She'd get us up in the morning and we'd pray and we'd work our way through the Lord's Prayer. But as we made our, weaved our way through the Lord's Prayer, we'd always land on those words of our Savior. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then she'd say, say it again, babies. And we'd say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Say, say it again, babies. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Say, say it one more time for the Holy Ghost. Thy kingdom come, and we be up all of it. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. And she say, now stop right there because the kingdom of God is coming and it's coming through you. Can you see what she was impressing on our spirits when we were five, six, seven years old? The kingdom of God is coming. And it's not necessarily coming through the academy. It's not necessarily coming through the state house. It's not necessarily even coming through the White House. The kingdom of God, babies, is coming through you. Because God pours out his treasure 
in earthen vessels. If you take a look at the text I've selected, it's Amos chapter 5, verse 24. These words have made their way famously into the American lexicon, not only through a reading of the Holy Writ, but because Dr. King quoted these words in the middle of the famous I Have a Dream speech during the March on Washington. On April 28, 1963, as he gave that address, there were four selected portions of scripture that he utilized as he moved his way to weave that tapestry of history and issues of economic and social justice and racial inequity. And ultimately, he would move through the struggles of a nation and the struggles of a world to confront issues of sin and division, to cast a dream that he had. But if you look at the text Dr. King chose, you see that he was a theologian not simply a scholar. What I mean is Dr. King was a preacher. And I know we don't like to talk about that much, but he was in fact a prophetic preacher. God was using his voice to do what our state system and our federal government could not bring itself to do. If you really look at how the civil rights movement moves forward, it was the church that pushed the government, not the government pushing the church. The church prophesied and the government had to respond to the prophetic utterance coming from God's lips. And isn't that the way it's always worked? See, here in the world, we name our kings, but ultimately there is the king of kings. And when the king of kings gets in the mix, you can no longer ignore the poor, the immigrant, the sharecropper, because God is in the midst. Amos is an interesting text to select to weave into. I would assume he'd want to use some immediate quote from our Savior Jesus Christ directly out of the Gospels that's kind of happy and uplifting or something that makes us feel a little better about ourselves. Maybe a nice proverb that's full of wisdom. Maybe a psalm because psalms are ultimately songs that are written in poetic verse. That sounds like it would be nice. Rather, he chooses an obscure poet from Tekoa, obscure prophet from Tekoa. And here we find Amos. Amos was a prophetic contemporary with the prophet Hosea, difference being between the two. If you read the words of Hosea as recorded in the Old Testament, they're a little more loving. It's justice, but it's love. You get a little more fire and brimstone when you look at the words of Amos. If you look at Amos chapter 5, we'll look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 24, which read these words, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If you look at the whole of that chapter, you'll begin to see that Amos, in his prophetic words, is taking a different turn you look at Amos chapters one verse, uh, chapter one through chapter two, verse three, is judgment of the surrounding nations, those nations which are around Judah and Israel. But if you focus on chapters two through six, you will notice very quickly from verse four of chapter two on to verse uh, 14 of chapter six, the prophetic prose changes its direction towards being on the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel. God is speaking to his own chosen people at this juncture in time. And if you look specifically at chapter five, where we find this verse that Dr. King quoted in the I Have a Dream speech, you'll see that it begins with woes. God speaks these woes. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was the day of justice. When God would return and work out his justice on all evildoers or so God's chosen people saw it. But here was the problem with Israel at this juncture in time. Israel and Judah believed themselves to be so chosen that when God returned and worked out his wrath and balanced the scales of the earth, it would be concerning all the surrounding nations but not around us. I find we do that far too often as Christians. We believe that when God comes back and settles the accounts, he's going to settle everyone's account around us, but he's not going to settle ours. He says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. 
Who do not long, you do, why do you long for the day of the Lord? This will be a day of darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered a house and rested his hand on a wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate and despise, this is God speaking. I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me, even though you bring burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But, verse 24, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Let justice roll down. Can, can, can you hear that language? This is not speaking of the beauty of water. It's not speaking of the satisfying properties of water. It's not speaking of the coolness of water. It's speaking of the strength of a body of water. It's giving a picture of something that is rolling in that cannot be swapped, let justice, that cannot be stopped. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Rolling like waters, an ever flowing stream. If you step into a rolling body of water, no matter how easily you can manipulate water, if it's in a glass at your fingertips, if you step into a flowing stream of water, it will sweep you off your feet, sweep you away. I'm from California. We have those nice West Coast beaches. But one of the things they tell you about those West Coast beaches is don't be fooled by the strength of the water. It looks nice from a distance, but when you get out there, you experience something called a riptide. Anybody know what a riptide is? And the water can lift your feet off the ground. Have you ever experienced that in the ocean where the water whips in a direction and pulls you off your feet? And it doesn't matter how much you can bench press, squat, or curl. When water in mass takes you over, you will be swept away. Can you see the imagery God is speaking to the prophet right here? God's justice will sweep us away. God's righteousness sweeps unrighteousness away. First, I want you to pick up the word picture used here that Dr. King paints. It's about justice and righteousness that is so strong, it sweeps away inequity and, in, inequity and inequality. But first of all, we need to define what justice is. Justice, in biblical terms, is the act of restoring community and healing broken relationships. Oftentimes, we make the mistake of placing God's justice and God's mercy in tension with one another. As if, they are, as if they are opposing ideas. Judgment is lived out through God's wrath. But when we speak of justice, we're speaking towards God's mercy lived out in a redemptive way. The restoration of community, the healing of inequity. As a matter of fact, Micah chapter six, verse eight reads, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Justice is not retributive and it's not punishment focused. Instead, justice is restorative and reconciling. Here, chapter five begins with God giving a rejection of all of the religious piety taking place in Israel and Judah. Here's what God says he wants to sweep into their lives. Justice, restoration of community, the breaking down of inequality, that's what God desires to roll in on his people. And righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness is a state of being, right, or morally justified in thoughts, words, and action. Righteousness is right deeds. We heal 
and restore community when we begin living in healing and restorative ways, which is why justice and righteousness must be linked together. God lives out the restoration of community by us living restored lives in community. It's as simple as that. God brings his justice forward through us as his people. And therefore, as we look at Dr. King selecting this text, there are three quick ideas that I want you to hear about the restoration of justice and righteousness in any community, the living as peacemakers together with one another. Here's notion number one. God brings justice and righteousness forth through everyday people. I made this point a little earlier. God is not looking for the greatest, the biggest, the most articulate, and the strongest, and the most well-educated. God is always looking for willing hearts and minds. And as we look at what we know and have termed as a civil rights era, a frequent mistake that's made is that this prophetic movement begins to look as though it was one man, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And maybe on its best day, we'll throw in one woman, that is Rosa Parks. And you begin to have a narrative that tells the story of two people who took two actions and led to a movement. And in the midst of doing that, you miss names. Like E.D. Nixon, the longtime organizer and activist who was president of the NAACP chapter of Montgomery, Alabama, and a central architect of the Montgomery bus boycott. You begin to miss names like Joanne Gibson Robinson, who served the Women's Political Council and partnered alongside E.D. Nixon to organize the Montgomery bus boycott. You may be shocked by this, but Dr. King was so young and so early in his family and so early in his pastorate at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, he actually did not have the social clout nor political clout in the city to pull off the bus boycott. We miss some of these facts that there were folks who had been in Montgomery doing the work for 40 plus years. When a young man showed up, can you see how God works? He brings in a young man by the name of Martin and a young lady who just married him by the name of Coretta. They had just finished their graduate program. They come take over a small church. And those who were 30 to 40 years, their senior in age, looked upon this young man and this young woman and said, this is the moment we've been waiting for. God's brought the vessel. He's educated, he's articulate, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he can speak. But I want you to see this narrative, because if we allow it to simply boil down to Dr. King, we miss this fact. God wants everyone involved in God's work on the earth. God was preparing Montgomery for that moment. And he sent the right person at the right time to link arms with the right people who were already cutting the path so that he could walk through it. That is the reason why even in Dr. King's own speaking, years past the moment of the Montgomery bus boycott, he continues to reference names if you look at his writings of those who mentored him, coached him, and taught him, and who prayed for him and covered him because he understood this was not his movement. It was God's movement, God's work. We lose names like the Reverend Dr. Robert Gretz who was similar in age to Dr. King and had come to Montgomery, Alabama, a Lutheran pastor who took his first parish that was predominantly African-American, though Dr. Gretz was German-American. We forget the stories of a Reverend Dr. Robert Gretz who supported Dr. King throughout the Montgomery bus boycott, who watched the King's children and Coretta and, and, and Dr. Gretz's bride and Dr. Gretz and Dr. Martin became very good friends and fellow pastors and he encouraged him in the journey, so much so that the Ku Klux Klan began firebombing his house. Because mind you, when you're dealing with the social construct, skin color is only used as a veneer for what evil really is. 
Because as soon as Reverend Gretz allowed the King family into his home, he was as good as the King's was. Do you understand what I'm saying? And whenever we stand up against unrighteousness, we put ourselves in the enemy's bullseye. We lose these names like the late, great Fannie Lou Hamer, this powerhouse prophetess who battled for voters' rights, women's rights, and served as vice chair of the Freedom Democratic Party, most famously declaring that she was sick and tired of being sick and tired. God lives out righteousness and justice through faithful community. When we are willing to give our hands to the work, God begins doing the work. He begins putting people in place and in position to have impact and make a difference. A number of years ago, there was a song while I was working on a college campus, it became very popular. And I heard it so much, I was nauseous. I still can't listen to the song today if it ever comes on. Several years ago, but every once in a while I still hear it, it bothers me. It's by John Mayer. God bless him. The title of the song was Waiting for the World to Change. Any of you ever heard that song? You know what irritated me about that song? Listening to people walk around declaring rhythmically they were waiting for the world to change. Little happens when we sit and watch evil take place and don't do anything. So if we're waiting for things to change, you might as well just keep on waiting. God does not call us to simply sit idly by in the midst of injustice and wait for things to change and wait for the right elected official to be elected, to wait for the right congressman to be put in position, to wait for the right leader to arrive in town and then we'll do something. Rather, Jesus declares, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But here's what Jesus says your obligation is. You've been given a light, let that light shine. And let it shine right where you are. Let it shine for your next door neighbor. Let it shine for your suite mate in the dormitory. Let it shine for your classmate who sits next to you in the classroom. Justice is lived out when we receive God's call to live out his justice and his righteousness right where we are. Not when we stand still waiting for somebody else to do it. This is the struggle we're in right now as a society. We want to sit and debate who's in the White House. You, you all want to hear the truth? I'm not concerned about who's in the White House. I'm concerned about God's call on my life. In four years, they'll throw somebody else in, and then the other half of the population will be upset about that person. And at the end of the day, God is still trying to clothe the naked, still trying to feed the hungry, and still wants us to serve the orphan and those who are broken and downtrodden. And I can't read anywhere in the Bible where God says we'll do it on the next election cycle. I have little time for sitting on social media talking about what other folks are doing. What I want to do is investigate what I'm doing. This is what God calls us to. Can you see him, can you see him looking Israel in the eyes in Amos chapter 5 and saying, don't tell me about this nation, that nation, that nation, and that nation. What are you doing? And as we look at this line of history, this great movement of peacemakers, of nonviolent resistance, we see name after name after name after name of everyday people who God used in a movement 
If we're to live out God's righteousness and justice, we have to understand that it will take place through community. No big eyes, no little U's. God desires each one of us and our gifts in his work in the world. Number two, I'd like to say this, God defines the standards for justice and righteousness. Knowing that the words of the prophet Amos are to the people of Israel, it's clear that God is holding his people to a standard. And by their own estimation, this is what we know. We know that though Israel is right now oppressing the poor amongst them in this book of Amos, and that is what God prophetically uses Amos to speak to for the people of Israel and Judah, apparently they don't see it as too big of a problem. They continue forward with their religious piety as they live in the midst of injustice and affirm it. But here we see Israel's view of Israel's self as holy and righteous is not God's standard for holiness, righteousness, and justice. And here's the truth of the matter. I am not the measuring rod for that which is good and that which is right. God's standard is the measuring rod for that which is good and that which is right. And here, here's the reason why I am not the measure of that which is right. Because I can put on a very good performance and convince you I am the most just and righteous person you've ever met. This is where Israel is. That's why God says, I despise your festivals. Your burnt offerings, they're, they're putrid to me. They turn me away. I don't want your religious piety. And if you look in the book of Samuel, remember when uh, Samuel, the prophet and the priest, was looking at the sons of Jesse, and it's made very clear, God does not look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Dr. King chooses a scriptural text in the I Have a Dream speech, in the I Have a Dream speech to underline this notion. God is looking at the heart of all of us. He looks past our veneer of pride. He looks past our nice clothes, the name brands we like to put on. God looks at each and every one of our hearts. And he calls us to hearts of justice, hearts that desire to restore, hearts that desire to build up, hearts that desire to partner together. He calls us to righteousness, hearts that desire to do that which is right and that which is good to one another. That's what God calls his people to. But here's the problem. One of the biggest drawbacks to preaching the gospel, let me tell you, I preach a lot. You want to know what the most difficult, you want to know what the most difficult issue to get over to folks when I preach the gospel is? Folks who, who have been looking at this Christianity thing and find it problematic, this is oftentimes a big subjection. Most folks think it's the miracle of the resurrection. Not really. We can go round and round about that one and talk about it, but it's usually not that. It usually doesn't even land on, you know, the, uh, the, the legitimacy of the text, the biblical history. I, actually, I oftentimes don't find myself debating the legitimacy of biblical scripture. That, that can pretty much be laid out, and a lot of secular and, um, and, and religious scholars have done that already. The, the text is legitimate. So I'm not debating the legitimacy of the biblical text. I'm not debating the legitimacy of miracles. Here's where my debate often comes down to when people reject Jesus. You are telling me that to accept him, I have to accept that I'm broken and I need him, and I don't like that because I'm prideful. And you know what, I'm not gonna put the microscope on you, I'm up here preaching, let me put it on myself. I, Neelan Charles Brown, am as prideful as I can be. You know when I figured it out? When I got married. I was pretty good till I met Tara. And we started living together because there were little things that she did wrong. And I would look at that woman and say, you're so fine, but what's wrong with you? 
think somebody looked this good would have it together. <laughs> Little stuff that would irritate me. Like, let me, let me ask you a question. If you're putting on a fresh roll of toilet paper in the bathroom, you're hanging it up, does the next square go to the back? Raise your hand if it goes to the back. Okay, I'm not seeing many hands. Good, not a lot of sinners in the room. <laughs> Who says it goes to the front? Supposed to come over, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> now, now, this is an even more nefarious group, and don't, don't even look around, because I don't want you to know how sinful some of the people around you are. How many of you don't care which direction it goes so long as it's there? That's my problem right there, is all y'all. If you raised your hand, we're having an altar call, come meet me up here after this is over. Because this foolishness right here, every time you reach for a square, you don't know where it is, people. It's problematic in my life. How am I to build a life with someone who don't know how to put toilet paper on the roll? <laughs> Scripture didn't prepare me for this, y'all. The struggle was real. The thing that got me was how these small things would irritate me. Or, or, or matters like this. You, you know, uh, the Heinz company came up with this bright idea they weren't going to put ketchup in glass bottles anymore. So now these plastic squeeze bottles everywhere. Anybody use those squeeze bottles for getting ketchup? God bless them. And it's a beautiful idea because that plastic bottle, you know, the glass bottle used to wear me out. I mean, to get some ketchup for your fries, you had to go get a knife out the kitchen, you know, had to stick it up in there and swirl it all around. And, and, and there were only two amounts to ketchup. There were only two amounts of ketchup to get from a glass bottle, either too little or too much. It's the only way it came. It never came out just right. Either you got half the bottle or none of the bottle. That was pretty much about it. You swirl the knife around in there, the ketchup just comes all the way down your knife in your hand. But they moved this plastic bottle. I thought it was a good idea. And it was a good idea until I got married. Because when I got married, I learned something. My bride, she doesn't always remember to wipe off the top after she uses it. When you don't wipe off the top of the squeeze bottle, you develop something which I like to call ketchup crust. <laughs> ketchup crust is dried ketchup that has collected around the squeeze bottle. And then you find yourself turning the bottle over, squeezing it as hard as you can, and nothing comes out. So you squeeze harder and harder and harder until it, amen, until air makes its way out somehow and it shoots in seven directions. <laughs> and here's the kicker, all seven directions it goes, it never lands on the object you had it pointing towards. <laughs> it's on your shirt, it's on the chair, it's also on the ceiling fan, but it is not on your hot dog. I use that as humorous, but pride, pride lives in each and every one of us. And oftentimes we confront it in small ways. And in order, truly, in order to truly pursue community, even in the context of living justly within my own marital context, in my own home, I have to allow Neil and Charles Brown to be crucified so I can actually love Tara. I gotta let some of me go so I can love somebody else. That's what I'm trying to say to you right here. Dr. King is bringing this point across. You gotta let yourself go so that you can love somebody else. I've gotta get me out of the way so that I can love my brother or my sister. Because so long as I am focused on me, I will never truly be able to live God's justice. So long as I am focused on me, I am okay with those who are underpaid. So long as I am focused on me, I am okay with those who are, who are battling about their immigrant status. I don't care about it. And I don't care where you fall on the immigration issue. You should be praying for families who are in the midst of a struggle, trying to make a living, trying to get by. It doesn't matter if you're with Trump, if you're with Obama, if you're with this, that, and the other. If a family has a decision that's being made, that is going to collectively throw them into an adverse situation, that should be problematic. At the very least, we should be praying. Whether or not you want a wall, I don't even want to talk about that foolishness. We should be praying for them. 
Because if my neighbor is fretting and hurting, I should be fretting and hurting. Scripture says this, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. It doesn't say mourn with them if they're on the right political line and espousing the right values. It says if they are mourning, I should be mourning. And you want to know the good news about mourning with those who mourn? When you care about someone else's sorrow and pain, when you find yourself in sorrow and pain, someone will care about you. Because pretty soon you'll have an issue that's coming right down the aisle on you. It may not be immigration right now. I'm good to go. I'm free and clear. My family's good, but I still want my children to pray for them because pretty soon something's coming at me. And when it comes at me, I want you praying for me. So in your moment of crunch and difficulty, I want to be praying for you. Can you see how justice is lived out in community? Righteousness is lived out in community. God uses each of us as a community to bring this to bear. But also God is the standard. And if God is a standard, I have to allow myself to decrease so that he can increase, so that I have space to care about the needs of others. My final point, my final thought right here, and I'm going to leave you all alone. God is the source of empowerment for righteousness and justice. Number one, Amos 5:24. Dr. King is alluding to this. Righteousness and justice is lived out in community. So our first only way we get to it is by working together in locking arms. God desires to use each and every one of us in his great work in the world to bring the water of righteousness and justice raging through the neighborhoods and the communities in which we live in the world. Secondly, God wants to get us out of the way. He is the standard of righteousness and justice. I have to see past me to be able to love and care for another. I have to lay my pride down. Lastly, it is God and God alone who empowers us to live justly and live righteously. It's weighty to consider all that God and his glorious splendor and his measure of justice and righteousness, it's hard to see how we can ever measure up to that. The good news is God not only sets the standard, but he empowers us through Christ Jesus to reach that standard. I love the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is, there's a crowd, Zacchaeus can't really see Jesus, scrambles his way up a tree, and, and Luke, as, as is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, Jesus sees this chief tax collector up in the tree, reviled by many because they know he's crooked, and he's gaining ill-gotten gain financially from the people. Jesus calls him down and says, tonight I'm staying in your home. And the people were shocked and amazed. If you've read the scripture, you know that. How is Jesus going to stay in the house of this sinner, break bread with him, have a meal with him? To go into someone's home and, and to break bread was almost as though you were condoning their existence at this point in time. You only did that with friends and loved ones and those you wanted to be seen with. And here Jesus was going to go into the home of this crooked individual and spend time with him. Do you know what Zacchaeus' response is when he's embraced by Jesus? It says these words, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. Jesus' response to him immediately was, salvation has come to his home that day. Simply by encountering Jesus, Zacchaeus is empowered to live justly. I'm right here with the close of my sermon. I'm landing this plane. We already done. I just closed my Bible. I'm just going to give you a couple examples to wrap this up so you can remember everything that I said. Number one, righteousness and justice is lived out in community. God wants you engaged. Number two, in order to pursue righteousness and justice, I have to understand that it's God's standard, not my own. I am not measuring someone else's uh, deservedness of righteousness and justice by myself and my own standard. Rather, it's by God's standard. And God gives it freely to all. 
Therefore, I'm to lay down my pride and get in line with that. And number three, God empowers us by his power to pursue righteousness and justice. I am saying that righteousness and justice and equality is too lofty a goal for you and I to pull off by ourselves. We need God. Here's what you often don't read in your history textbooks. We talk about the Edmund Pettus Bridge. We talk about the marches that took place in the South during this period in time. We talk about these great movements where the people would nonviolently protest and sit at counters and they would do sit-ins at restaurants, so on and so forth. We see the pictures of dogs biting individuals and others being shot with um, water cannons, high-powered water hoses out by local fire departments. We see Bull Connor and other notable individuals who resisted the civil rights movement that was taking place in the streets of the South. We see all of those pictures, but here's what they don't picture for you. Do you know that before each of those marches and demonstrations, it would begin in a church? They would not march until they had been in a sanctuary together. And they had been praying and seeking God and having folks come up and inspire them and speak scripture over them and speak prophetically over them. And once they felt the spirit of God abiding in the room and moving on each individual, only then were they prepared in the spirit of the Lord to walk out, be bit by a dog, beaten with a billy club, shot by a water hose, kicked, spit upon, and cussed out. And allow themselves to be arrested and go to jail without fighting back. You want to know why they did this? Because they knew they could not be empowered to live justly by themselves. They needed to tarry, as my grandma would say, and as my mom would say, and as my daddy would say, they needed to tarry until the Lord showed up. Because when God shows up and you have an encounter with God, you can do things that are beyond yourself. This is what Zacchaeus did. He was crooked up until the moment he encountered Jesus. But once he met Jesus, he was lifted above himself. And that's my point. If we want to see righteousness and justice, the first step is to have a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because only through my encounters with him am I able to be what he has called me to be. Am I lifted above myself to such a point that I can care about, love, and desire the good of someone else who I don't even know? And here's the good news. When you understand God empowers us to live justly, you put your hope fully in him. When they were marching, they didn't know when it was going to turn around. When they were walking and not taking buses, they didn't know when it was going to end. It was over a year. They didn't know that it was going to work. They were not assured it. When they were sitting at lunch counters and being beaten and spit upon, they did not know in that moment that it was going to work. It's easy for us because we know how it ended to say that was easy for them to do. They knew it was coming. They did not have any promise that things would change with the 100-year extension of slavery. They did not know that, but they were empowered to wait on the Lord. And that's the good news. When God empowers you, you can trust God. My daughter Savannah lived a period of her life where she only wanted one thing. You know what that was? Juice boxes. When she hit about three years old, she was obsessed with juice, any kind of juice box. High C juice box, uh, Kool-Aid juice box, Capri Sun juice box, treetop juice box. This girl loved juice boxes. And it's like her whole three-year-old and four-year-old world resolved, revolved around when she was going to get her next juice box. And every once in a while when I was working in my study at home, she'd wander in and she'd have a little toy in her hand and she'd say, Daddy? i say, yes, Savannah. she said, I want juice box. And she said, have a juice box. And I tell her what every wise husband says to his child when they ask him for something in the house. Go ask your mama. <laughs> go ask your mama, girl. She go upstairs, talk to mama. She come back down and I still be typing away. She said, daddy. I said, yes, Savannah. She said, mama said, have a juice box. I said, mama said, have a juice box. Yeah, mama said, have a juice box. I said, okay, daddy's going to get you a juice box. And I would turn around and get right back to my typing. 
And Savannah would race out of the room into the front room of the house, and I would hear it coming, and I used to find it so amusing. I'd say, you're gonna get a juice box. I'd turn around and start typing back to my work, and she would run down the hallway into the family room, and she'd begin singing a song that sounded like this. Juice, 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 I'ma get some juice. My daddy got juice, and I'ma get that juice. I love juice boxes, the taste to my tummy, they make me feel good, and I'm about to have one. Juice, 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 I gotta have juice. Now I get some juice, get some juice. Now I'm gonna have some juice, all the juice, apple juice, orange juice. Juice, crabby juice, love the juice, love the juice. I'm a hazard juice, gonna have Savannah loves to sing and dance. She that dance, juice, 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 I'm hazard juice, oh yeah, juice. And listen, here's the kicker. I was still in my office typing. She was on the other side of the house singing. Now, 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 now hear me, because this is three-year-old theology. Her daddy had not gotten up to get her the juice box yet, but she was already thanking her daddy for the juice box that he had promised to her. I didn't even have to move and she was celebrating already. Here's the truth. How do you stand in a dark space and continue to have your joy and sing God's praises when there are dogs in front of you, fire hoses in front of you, a Congress that's against you, uh, clans and committees of people who are burning down houses and bombing the churches where children are worshiping? How do you still have your joy, link arms, and sing God's songs? How do you give an address on the Washington Mall before civil rights legislation has even been passed? How do you do it in the midst of, 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 of attempts at your life throughout the years? How do you do it in the midst of segregated education, Segregated water fountains, segregated schooling, segregated busing, segregated restaurants. How do you do it? You do it when you have three-year-old theology, this three-year-old theology. Savannah could celebrate the juice box before she got the juice box because she knew she had a faithful daddy. Her trust wasn't in the juice box. Her trust was in her daddy. And if my daddy says I'm going to get a juice box, I can dance because the juice box is coming. And that's the good news in a dark world. God empowers us to see the light before the light breaks through. How do we know we're going to make it through this year? Because daddy's faithful. How do we know you're going to make it through the course, the class you're in right now, which is straining you the most? Because God is faithful. How do you know you're going to make it to the graduation stage? Because God is faithful. How do you know a culture of degradation, anger, and hate that we're seeing moving around that is so politically divisive is going to change? Because God is faithful. God brings justice like a river. God brings righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I can sing God's song with joy when I understand his righteousness and his justice is coming through us, but it's coming by his power. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together. Lord, is my sincere prayer, something I've said today will speak to the heart of those who are gathered here today. Let us be faithful, Father God, faithful to pursue your justice, faithful to pursue your righteousness. Lord, use us in this space and this time to affect your change in the world. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.